0: Hi, everybody. This is Warren Pies, co-founder and chief strategist of 314 Research. In today's conversation, Fernando Vidal, my co-founder and chief data scientist at 314 Research, and I speak with Vincent Deliward, a longtime friend and chief macro strategist at StoneX. Vincent has been all over social media and various podcasts discussing his outlook for inflation, which is out of consensus to say the least. Vincent expects 5 to 10% average inflation over the next decade and walks us through the secular drivers that he sees pushing inflation higher. At 314 Research, we are sympathetic to the view that inflation could change on a secular basis going forward. However, we do push back against many of Vincent's inclusions, and ultimately, we can't see the world evolving to the place that he gets us to. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you learned something from it, and I appreciate your listening. Thank you.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is a podcast by 314 Research. It's a special edition. We have Vincent Delouard, Director of Global Macro at StoneX and also Professor at McGill University uh, with us today. He is a friend of ours for a very long time. We worked, all three of us together, at Ned Davis Research for, for many years before we kind of all went on our separate paths. Warren and I got back together for 3.14 research, and we continue to speak with Vincent, so we're very excited to have him here today to, to discuss all the things that we've been talking about and all the things he's been talking about. So that's uh, Vincent, and I'm Fernando, and of course, Warren, let's get started. Uh,
2: thanks, Fernando, I appreciate being here, I mean, we, we talked about this for, for a long time, and um... I couldn't think of a better day to talk about macro, the Fed, inflation, and what might I have had for markets in 2022. So, why do we start?
3: Well, I'm going to start by just saying uh, this is awesome. You know, we have for for everybody kind of watching this or just thinks we're just kind of uh, acquaintances. We're actually three really good friends, and we've been close for probably a decade now. We've debated markets hundreds of times at different stages of, uh, 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 of recent history. And I, I speak to Vincent myself probably every week, obviously Fernando and I talk daily about markets. So we thought this would be, uh, you know, we had Vincent was on market huddle recently on a bunch of different, uh, interesting podcasts and he's been calling for, uh, inflation for, a, a really since the uh, crisis kicked off. And so, He's seen a lot of his predictions come to pass here on the macro side. We've been a, a little bit, you know, out. we've been slow to, to, to see things the same way as him. Uh, and one of the things we want to do at 314 is to try to make sure that we investigate where we could be wrong. So if we have anyone who's got a different viewpoint, we want to accept that and learn from it. Take it, anything that's worth uh, taking out of it and then you know, form our own conclusions. So I think Vincent's going to give us kind of a differentiated viewpoint and one that's been correct for a bit now. And so i um, excited to t- have this conversation and, and learn from him in this format. So tell us, Vincent, you have, <laughs> you, you, you've been waiting, you've been waiting a long time to, to take a victory lap on inflation. And it seems like you're kind of there now. So is we'll dig into it where appropriate and stuff but give us your view of the world your view specifically as it applies to inflation what you think is happening right now because i mean that is what's that's the big question of the day is like we have the seven and a half percent cpi reading the fed is about to respond in some way shape or form to that so the question is you know where do we go from here is this a real sustainable inflation what are the risks that we um that this is actually going to be transitory and move into you know maybe a a lesser state, or or are we going to spiral up from here, or stay at this elevated rate? Like, how do you see that
2: all playing out? Yeah, you know, I think in the short term, um, it, it's possible that we see a, a slowdown in, in inflation. I mean, just because of the basic facts, um, some of the Effect from, from market volatility, uh, maybe some resolution in in Eastern Europe and and low energy prices. So, I, I'm not that interested in, in you know making a two, three month forecast of inflation because I think it's a little bit of a pull cool there and there. Um, <clears throat> but I, I I remain convinced that we will stay in a high inflation regime, and by high inflation regime I would mean core PC at you know around four uh, in in 2022. Uh, and that the decade that we will experience that's coming, the 2020s, will be somewhat similar to the 1970s, uh, during which we had, you know, average inflation around seven eight percent. And I think that would probably be a good thing uh, for, for the economy and for many of the issues that we have. And that's one of the reasons why I was such a, an early proponent of inflation, um, is because I think it is in some way. A solution a painful medicine for sure, but, but a medicine uh, for many of the crises that ail uh, Western societies. Uh one thing that
1: I think my experience made me more sensitive to is the alternative, uh, which is Europe or, or Japan. Um if we stay if we had stayed in that equilibrium
2: in the 2010s when you had you know the, the new normal low growth, low rate, negative rates, I mean this is really a sclerosis societies. Uh, you see inequalities Bike, you see populism, um, you see generations that are effectively being sacrificed on the altar of preserving the boomer's pension. Um, so, yes, inflation feels scary, but it's not like there is a, an alternate reality you can switch. I, I think the alternative is actually scarier than, than a decade of inflation.
1: That's kind of a normative argument for a higher inflation rate, or is like, what are the catalysts for, for the kind of regime shift? That that we're going to see, other than the fact that it would be a, supposedly a good thing for for the society.
2: Well, I, and um, I mean, uh, your point is taken. Uh, I mean, there is a to some extent almost an ideological preference here, but I'm not going to hide from it. I mean, I'd rather be be upfront about it. I do think that most people's view are ultimately framed in in their ideological and political beliefs, and you know, it's just a matter of being upfront about them. Um, But uh, in terms of the the immediate um, drivers of that transition, I mean, there's hours of podcasts that are recording that topic. So I'm not going to go through every argument. To me, the most important one, I think to understand why we don't have inflation now, we have to understand why we did not have inflation, but did this inflation for for 30 years before that. And and one thing that I find interesting is the first time you hear the term great moderation, uh from the Fed, which was from Greenspan, uh was in nineteen ninety-four. Uh and the Great Moderation referred to the surprising disappearance of, of inflation. The US economy was growing fast and not generating inflation, which was um unheard of until the nineties. And of course Greenspan being Greenspan, he attributed to his own genius, uh, and the fact that the Fed had you know finally quashed the inflation spirit. Really, what happened in 1994, China had devalued its currency cumulatively by 70%. Um, and had started to work its economy. Um, so suddenly it had the term was eventually coined as the Great Doubling. Uh, it had the, the global workforce had doubled with, with China, India, and uh, the inclusion of Eastern European countries for communism. Um, and then China was really just the first domino to fall. Uh, because China devalued the currency so much and started to subsidize production, um, it forced its neighbors to do the same thing. So in short succession, you had the, the Thai bath crisis, the Indonesian group at three in one. And pretty much you know, all in a row, all of East Asia started to adopt the policies of China, which are demand repression, subsidizing production, and using a deeply undervalued exchange rate uh, to, to, to increase exports. Uh, so that was of course massive education in the West. And that's that's why you can see, for example, if you get a CPI, if you get a durable group component, it starts to break off from the general trend of CPI because of, of the impact of China. I mean, economists refer to this as the war market, but we really, need really, really to go one step further. <laughs> you know, where is the stuff that you buy in Walmart um, <clears throat> made? now we have to understand why China did this, because <clears throat> They had a massive baby, baby boom in the 70s. There was basically tenure in China when you can make babies so after the Great Leap Forward, before the one child uh, policy. So you had this huge influx of workers in the early 90s who needed to find jobs quickly. And China was too poor to provide these jobs in the domestic economy. So they had to return to this colonial model. And then it spread that throughout the world. That was a deflationary shock for the West. Now, my contention is that this is over. Um, I mean the kids who were born in the 70s and in terms of the labor force in the 90s in Asia are now uh in their in their 50s. Uh and they didn't have many kids. I mean, they were basically forced to work with only one. Uh so the Chinese labor force who used to expand by 10 million workers every year, is now shrinking by five, going all the way to 10 in three four years. So to me, that means that this, this reservoir of, of labor, this, this cheap workforce that we could um uh, Reach and you know, very productive workforce, very, very qualified, um, very good infrastructure is no longer going to be there. And I think you'll we'll start to see this in, in the fact that China is not stimulating, but its economy is slowing. You know, you have all these people, oh, you know, China's going to stimulate growth for below five. I think we'll be surprised by uh, the, the China's tolerance for lower growth because it doesn't need the job anymore. And we'll enter into a new era where we'll have structurally rising Asian currency. Uh, and that will be inflation in the West. If I had to just pick one driver, I think yes,
3: the most important one. I, I I think that what's interesting about us is that in some ways, if you read our research, you might get the impression that we have a disagreement. We had a disagreement last year about like the transitory versus structural nature of inflation. But I think it when you when you take a step back and look at the secular drivers of disinflation, that's where we have a, a strong agreement with uh, 314 and that's something you've done a lot of work on it uh, and we've traded notes on this for for a while now and, and really like we had that new world order report last year and, and just getting to the point, reiterating the point you made, which is when around 1998-2000 when China comes into World Trade Organization, that's when durable goods prices Fall rapidly in the United States, and that has been the when you decompose uh, CPI, basically in in prices, that's been the the disinflationary tailwind of the last twenty five years. So, if all these things, and I think that you make a good case, and uh, it makes sense to us too, that if all of these things, these societal changes, demographic changes uh, in China, and just ultimately a, a society that's coming into um. Becoming more wealthy and relying less on being the manufacturer to the world, I think that uh, this is a real secular change, and it's going to be an inflationary headwind for asset markets. And so that was that's kind of a central thesis in in the founding of in in starting of three fourteen was that we would uh, that inflation would tick higher that the playbook of the last twenty five years is is going to have to change you know and the the idea that rates fall stocks and bonds are are negatively correlated these things are assumptions that you know 60 40 portfolios and so many different strategies are based on but you know that's that's not how the world always was you know the stat that i always like to pull out when we take that what we think is the cause of uh goods manufactured in China, disinflation in the United States, the cause of the stock bond correlation going negative, the the effect is that in the 100 worst equity days we've seen since 1998, bonds were up, long-term treasury bonds were up 83 out of those 100 days. If you go before 1998, it was 65 out of those 100 worst pre-1998 days that, that bonds were down with stocks in sympathy. So the bottom line is, is the current market structure is not the market structure we've always had. And so it, it's gonna, I think there's a good chance it turns out to be more of a historic anomaly than many of the, uh, many financial watchers and just sixty forty set it and forget it types would would believe. So this is a point I think of a, a strong agreement between us 314 and what you're seeing. So from a thematic viewpoint, we'd agree. You see it the same way, Fernando?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we have a little less surety, I guess, about uh, which of the secular tailwinds for inflation. Um, Like, we focus more on the energy stuff and less on the demographics, because I think there are good demographic arguments, both sides, for inflation being lower or higher. Like an aging population in China, but in the United States, we have a median age that is getting into the area of like the cohort that is the most disinflationary, right?
2: If, if I may uh, interject here on, on, on US demography, uh, <clears throat> two things I thought were, were interesting. um my um, curiosity. One is the, the, the average age of the US farmer is 59 years old. Um, and the second one is the turnover uh, among truck drivers last year was 90%. And
1: the average edge
2: is about 50 also for for truck drivers. And and I think it it matters for some of the inflation bouts that we're seeing, Um, especially in the the sense of that, oh, it's going to be transitory, the supply chains
1: will will fix themselves. Well, you know, if you make it impossible for for truck drivers to operate because of new
2: regulation on on drugs and testing, vaccines or whatever, they're not not going to fix themselves. And then the farming issue, um, you know, obviously maybe contribute to the patient for much longer because you can't really just think on farmers.
1: Well, it's a reflexive process, right? Like if the price signal is there, I doubt that the average age is going to stay at 50 or whatever it is like the price mechanism is such that, you know, people are not just going to sit on the couch when there are these enormous wages available for people doing those jobs. And the fact that the U.S. has this bulge of a population that's moving into the most You know, productive working years of their life, um, you know, just feels like there's a pool of capital, a pool of uh, labor there that is kind of emerging into that highly, those highly productive working age years, and then we have another mass that's moving into uh, retirement, where the preference for things like durable goods drop dramatically, and the preference for services uh, increase. Right, so we have this bulge that's getting older and. They're going to consume less uh, uh, goods, but they're going to uh, ask. They're going to need more things that are labor oriented as opposed to durable good oriented. So, like, I think what you're saying about the Chinese demographics and manufacturing and all that is true, but there are other sides of the argument. Like when people talk about inflation and demographics, aging populations are usually an argument for a disinflationary uh, uh, impulse.
2: Right. Uh, there's been a good study that there yeah, from the Bank for International Settlement that actually found that it's kind of a, um, uh, if you want a, a U-shaped curve. Uh, yes, some aging uh, is deflationary, um, especially when you get this this kind of um, demographic dividend, right? One big generation, few kids, few parents. So that means your dependency ratio is very, very low. You have a lot, a lot of your population that's active and working. That's different deflationary. But as you as your population ages past that point, then your dependency ratios must rise, um, and then you know if we get to a point which is you know not that crazy. I mean, in Europe you have uh, Italy, you have for example less than fifty percent of the population is working uh, in part,less because of unemployment and no female participation. But in large part, it's a very old society. Um, you know, if you have just you know one person out of two that's working, uh, the, and, and and we subsidize the consumption of the other half, um, eventually, you have you know more money choosing your your production capacity. So but you're I, I saying like a shadow labor participation
3: rate kind of uh, goes down uh, with the aging population in that. Yeah, time.
2: I would say, it's the, especially in the US, where we have this this uh, inflation index pension system. Uh, you know, one of the disinflationary arguments that I hear a lot is, "Oh, we can't have inflation because we don't have unions anymore." Uh, well, first of all, I think labor is making it come back. I mean, you saw that with the the, the big strikes, the, the, the cat, even the Canadian truckers. So I mean, it's a good thing, in your opinion. But you're seeing these guys are getting really good good, good raises. Uh, but also, I think the the difference between now and the '70s and we barely had social security; barely been voted right. Uh, today, we have about 35% of the population that's either uh, on on retired or disability, who spiked after COVID um and, and a lot of these people are getting this automatic you know cost of living adjustment and, and this is where the bulk of the wealth is in the u.s it's in that Boomer generation so um i think one of the one of the reasons why i want inflation is i think it's a way to you know kind of default on boomers uh, <laughs> because you know and, and then, but i think we need to do that somehow and, and in the u.s it can be very hard to do because you know the, the collars i mean they reset annually so i guess you know if it accelerates always be behind but um, it's going to be a very difficult process, and that
3: could feed, um this kind of uh, wage price spiral. Um, Isn't that kind stuff? of a similar type of argument that people are making with the skills mismatch, which is the part that, you know, it, you, you hear is, you know, yeah, we, like Fernando saying, well, well higher prices will incent new farmers. Right. Well, are we, you know, have having, you know, the the proper skills to be a farmer, you know, you can't go from it's just like the same concept that we close a factory down and all these people are going to learn how to code. It's like the friction of in the skill mismatch is a real phenomenon. And it actually shrinks the effective pool of labor to force up prices. That's kind of a similar function of like once you get an aging population. You have effectively, whether it shows up in your labor participation rate or your just available labor pool or whatever the statistic would be, your effective pool of labor is lower. And so, if you have that con- compounded on the fact that we don't have the right skills in society to do the jobs that are in high demand,
2: then yeah, I I, I would add. Uh, yeah, one example, for example, uh, I mean, uh, on the uh, the trucker side. Um, one of the reasons why we have such high, high turnover for truckers is we rolled out some um, some new uh, measures, restrictions for, for entry specifically on, on, on drug usage. Um, I mean, there's the, the COVID-19 so that's the one that makes the headlines. That's that's something, I mean, you know, it will have, you know, in most of the nation, 10% of, in the, of the population will choose to take the vaccine, and that's going to have an impact on any professional truckers, but the, the biggest one for truckers is drug use. So, the the standards for being a trucker have been dramatically um increased and you look at the population of uh, share the u.s population who regular, regularly regularly consumes marijuana or alcohol is very high yeah so we can't i mean and also these are these are jobs that you know people don't want to do i mean young people do not want to become farmers not want to become truckers so so to me if i were to kind of broaden it it seems to me that the elasticity of labor has, has dropped the, the way the price elasticity the way of labor for example, in in, since in 2008, that elasticity was near infinity um, you know, because there was no job in the economy and people were losing their homes and, and they had no choice. They would take a job at McDonald's, in burger for $7.5 an hour. Um, today is very different, uh, in part because of, of uh, stimulus payments or because of the, the availability of, of gig income or because of preferences. Um, they rise. In. Yeah, high high price is not your high prices. And I, I think that's true of labor and that's also true of energy. You know, I'll probably let yeah. you in. But my, my general view is we, you know, if you think about production in economy, it's all the product of labor and energy. There's nothing else, right? Um, and it seems to me that in both cases, uh, these two resources are much less price-plastic than they used to be. Yeah, I mean,
3: energy is kind of to stay on the secular, the secular drivers of disinflation. That's as Fernando mentioned, like. When the two things we saw when we look at it is obviously the changes that were within global trade. In that, you know, maybe COVID is like a maybe COVID is a catalyst for us to reorder, or reorganize supply chains in general. Maybe nearshore, onshore, whatever happens. But it's hard to go from I don't know. You, it's I don't want to say globalization is over. That's kind of a foolish statement. But we've been saying that incrementally that there could be a, a, a new cost-benefit analysis for just, you know, 100% globalization where we go to the cheapest form of, of labor at all times. Um, and I think, you know, maybe COVID has exposed some of the some of the costs, you know, to, as, a, as opposed to just seeing the benefits and the cheaper TV prices and stuff like that that we've had. Uh, but energy is the other big driver. You know, we had shale revolution uh, over the last 10 years. And if you look at, of the charts that we like to show was uh the fed's two percent target and then cpi versus the two percent target and like right around 2014 when oil collapses due to the shale revolution that's when the fed just perpetually underperforms their two percent target so you know that's been a huge tailwind and at the same time from 2014 forward if you run Just aggregate free cash flow for the the United States, you know, shale producing, uh, the shale patch, it's all negative. Returns are negative from 2010 to 2020. If you take non dividend paying EMP stocks, they were a basket of those, all publicly traded non dividend paying EMP stocks in the United States lost 87% of its total value from 2010 to 2020. So, bottom line is something's changing there too. You know, the, the, the hurdle rate for every well-being drill is changing so you see that in the price of oil I think these are real um, secular arguments that I could get behind I think that you know we in, in Fernando I do debate them internally. I think it's something we could uh, we could get behind the part mm-hmm. where I start having uh, whether cognitive dissonance or just like I have some kind of skepticism is tying all these secular things, to the current CPI print. Like, mm-hmm. do you see that? Like, is that something you like honestly see that the like all this, which is, a, I think a very true and has been true and can remain true. Is that what we're seeing right now? Is that the, is that well,
2: the- I, I think, I mean, you guys have done a, a fantastic job and every single portion of breaking down even your last about Jess, we're talking about the impact of the used cars or uh the impact of energy you know, out well you know energy prices are unlikely to double although i mean i would not read out completely by the way uh but uh you know uh i kind of agree that it's unlikely to only you know, cannot double every year um uh, so um yes um i mean if you look at it mathematically the, the concept of the cpi you can always actually do this part or this part or this part or this part, or this part. And, and to me it's kind of a force for the tree argument where um, you can say, well, you know, this is not really a force. This is just history and history and that other tree and that other tree. And, and my view is that, well, how else do you expect inflation to happen? I mean, this is what happened. You'll see it first. In, I remember we had this conversation about two years ago. Say it's going to be something weird, like a toothpaste price. I mean, it was not toothpaste. It was probably the Canary Coal Mine was lumber, right? Uh, and then it was computer chip, and then it was used cars. Uh, now, it's, now it's oil. Um, the, the point is is uh, it's hard. Yeah, hey, this is how this thing manifests. Like there will be these weird spikes spikes and, and some of them will eventually get solved. I mean, for example, lumber
1: lumber price came down or will they, they back up again. Um I Don't, you mentioned okay. that yeah. That's that's kind of a point that, that is interesting. When we looked at the different components of like the highest level components of of CPI, I mean it's extremely mean reverting, all of them. And that's one of the reasons why headline inflation has been lo- was low pre-COVID was because whenever one thing was zigging, the other one was zagging, And it feels, I don't know, looking at the data, you could make the case that um, what's essentially happened uh, to explain the most recent inflation, not necessarily the inflation that we'll see over the next 10 years, is that a, a specific uh, one-time event that affects the entire system as a whole, caused all of the different cyclical components of inflation so all the stuff we've been talking about truckers wages go up and then tons of people become truckers or tons of you know people become programmers and the wages go down all that kind of thing like those things are uh idiosyncratic they don't all happen at the same time but because of covid we've just synchronized all these different things and if you look at each component on its own you're like yeah it's high but Very few of them are like enormously higher than they've ever been in the past. The reason that the the sum total is high is just because all of the peaks happen to happen at the same time. That just like looking at that makes me think once this systemic effect of, you know, stimulus and uh, supply chain restriction is removed, things will kind of go back into the kind of uh, uh, buildup of inventories, buildup of, People trying to acquire the skills to get these crazy wages that we're seeing, and things will kind of uh, go become out of sync again as all those various things get um, uh, go back to being idiosyncratic as opposed to systemic.
2: I have a counter argument to that, but um, before that, I, I meant to ask you a question. So I, I listened to your last podcast, and you mentioned uh, things eating the cheap side, and especially uh, for used cars. And, uh, my car is about to die. Um, So I want to know uh, what makes you think like,
1: um, what is the data that that makes you think that the spike in use
2: car price is going to go
1: down? Yeah, so we've seen the first increases, not month, not 12 uh, year over year, but like like I have access to this high frequency data feed that gives you day by day pricing for different vehicles. And just recently in the past couple of weeks, we've seen the first kind of weakening of, of those trends. I mean, it, it could like go right back up. Used car mm-hmm. had like three bursts of month to month uh, increases that kind of rolled up into the crazy 12 month, year over year change that we've seen. And this last most recent one um, that started in uh, November and December was smaller like month over month than the prior ones. Um, and then like the data from the beginning of February is showing across all the different brands, um, uh, a slowdown in, in the prices. So you know, obviously, and, it could, is, it, is that because of the um,
2: easing on the computer ship for Because I mean, you, you've seen TSMC like, you know, investing a lot. And I mean, I, what, what's I your take on that? that.
1: No. I, I mean, I've, it could be that, but I, I I haven't looked at like the production schedules of how many vehicles the, the major companies have shipped. but. I mean, it's probably just a saturation point that the demand for vehicles is just not, it's not going to be infinite. Like there's a point at which all the, you know, relocations and lifestyle changes that happen from COVID will be satisfied, right? Like people's cash balances will be sapped to, you know, adapt to their new situation. If that means buying a car, it means buying a car, but eventually, you know, we'll, we'll have some kind of equilibrium. It, it kind of goes to the argument that, you know, markets work this way. They they prices rise, supply comes online, or demand is weakened. Change, this, you know, people make decisions to change uh, their behavior so that crazy price increases don't just perpetuate uh, to to infinity.
3: My question would be like, or my thought would be, well, maybe maybe we're not gonna revert imminently maybe that because I I know you're talking about we've seen that month over like a really high frequency rollover beginnings of a rollover if you you have to squint to see it for used car pricing but what you know it was the chip shortage that gave us you know the the car shortage which gave us you know a high pricing of automobiles plus it was like the rental car uh, companies sold off their fleet and then had to buy back their fleets I mean there was some weird pandemic related stuff so what do we think as a group, like if we could come to an agreement like that, that I would put all that in a supply chain category. Mm-hmm. Would you agree like that new and used car spike that we've seen as a, that's a supply chain related uh anomaly that. Yeah.
2: No, no, I, I'm not am uh, It's I, not I, like I'm, we did I'm a new permanently it. high
3: plateau. I mean, yes, I, yes. I tell you this, you want to know a weird thing that happened to me this week? My car, I'm dead serious. On Monday, driving my kids to school and my car won't go above twenty miles an hour. So, you know, I slow rolled into the dealership. And I it's impossible. They have no loaners. They have no inventory on the lot. That's the first thing you realize. Uh, and then they told me that rats somehow got into my engine and ate all my like wires out of my my engine. So it's a fifteen thousand eight hundred dollar bill which fourteen thousand dollars is labor to go to the kind of we're trying to incent new mechanics and stuff in the world um thankfully it's covered by my insurance but like they have no way of it's impossible for me to get a rental car right now i'm I'm haggling with that it's impossible for me to um you know like they i'm at their mercy basically And, and and when i say what's what's kind of like an eta can you give me any eta nothing no No, I mean I you you can't get they told me you can't get an oil change without two months ahead appointment there. So the point being is like this sucks. There's nobody wants to be in this world. So like I think that the idea that we've hit a new type of like version of the car industry with these prices and this type of service level, I think car manufacturers are getting angry with dealerships and consumers are getting angry at dealerships and I see this as something that's going to, when it reverts is an open question somewhat, but it will revert,
2: right? I mean, that's what we we would all assume, right? Uh, I mean, I think that leads me into my, my most recent report, which was on the Inflation Expectation Channel, and I, I would um, follow on your point on the psychology of this. I mean, you know, we all have anecdotes like this, right? I mean, I, I have one, um, you know, I mean, things are just not normal. Um, two years into this pandemic and it still feel, feels feel that things are wrong and i as one reason why i think you know we could move from from this transitory base effects supply chain driven inflation which i agree with you if, if you look at the cpi that's what mostly has been uh to something more structural is, is twofold uh one is um the move to more persistent um because of inflation i.e rising labor and and uh one is the rent the oer which we already see are rising and will keep rising for, for 2022. So even if we get really, the really difficult stuff, this will keep rising. And then the second one is probably the more important on the long term is inflation, inflation So my, my last report was all inflation is inflationary. Um, and, and that reflects that, that, that fact. I mean, if you look at the distribution of inflation over time, you'll see it's not a normal distribution by any stretch. Um, I, I compared it to the distribution of global growth. Global growth is nice down here. Inflation is this very long right tail, and that, what this right tail tells you is that when you are at seven percent, the odds are going to go to ten are much higher than what they should be in a normal distribution. They're much higher. It's much easier to go from seven to ten than it is to go from one to four, um, because because of the inflation expectation channel that starts modifying behaviors. Now I think it's muted in the U.S. because no one in our generation had this experience. Uh, but if you go to developing countries, I mean, the moment you start seeing shortage in in, in the store, which we still have in the U.S., people start buying. Uh People start asking to be, build ahead of time, and, and then the velocity of money starts to pick up. And then, I mean, this is my forecast, this is not happening yeah. at this point, but I do think the story for 2022 is going to be rising velocity. I mean, if you look at the past twenty years, you know the, the whole monetary framework has collapsed, right? I mean, M V equals P T. They assume that V was stable. Increase M, you got, right? Well, uh, if, if V, uh, what we've done for the past twenty years, we've changed M, and as we change M, V has changed, right? When we increase M, uh, V collapsed. Uh, then when we had twenty cycling for, for three years, uh, M fell down, V picked up. My expectation for twenty twenty two, as we get into this hiking cycle and this this tapering of the Fed's boundaries that V will not only offset that decrease in M, but maybe extra even further because of the expectation channel.
3: You think that, well, I would agree that V is going to pick up because I think almost mathematically it has yes. to I has mean, to if come. you drain reserves yes. out yes. of the system, yes. Yes. you know, you end up with mathematically your you're spiking velocity. Uh, I think you got to look back to, we've had this conversation before, you have to go back. I think loan growth is what is the tell for like a true expansion and a demand driven kind of inflation. When you talk about inflation being inflationary, would you say like, so to take that, because I'm like this concrete realist, basically, obviously, like when it comes to like the cars, new and used cars, would you say like, okay, so there's a part of that cost increase that's just not going to go away. There's just like, there's not, we're not going to get it back because it's like that, that part has come through and people have adjusted to it.
1: And, and one dealer will have a car and they won't lower the price to try to compete <laughs> with another dealership because they know, like, all right, we can play this game. I'm not going to lower the price, even though I have it and you don't like or we both have it and I can get it. I can get the sale because my price is a little bit lower, like the awesome. whole watch, the whole natural, you know, competition argument and all of that.
2: that hasn't been what we've seen in, in earnings, though. I mean, if you listen to any of the earnings over the past quarter, it's corporations. Yeah. You know, costs are rising, but you know what? We're raising prices and and customers are taking it. I mean, you look at, you know, customer staples, cars, um, um, any sectors you look at. I mean, basically, we have... You wouldn't
1: expect executives to give guidance that, oh, yeah, this is totally going to crash next year. Like, you wouldn't expect that, right?
2: No, um, Yes, (laughs) but I'm referring to the... I mean, it's been a year, it's still, and uh, to me, it seems that we have, and I know it's somewhat... Uh, contradictory, but we have both very strong labor and both very strong capital in the US at this moment, Um, because we've come through on on the corporate side, we've come from a a four year cycle of of massive consolidation across every industry, you name it, and you look four years ago, you had probably 60 players, you know, airlines right now, you only have four banks, you know, you had hundreds of the regional banks, all that stuff, now you get the big four and that's it a uh, big tech company biggest example of Monopoly, but even like a meat packers, uh, consumer staples company all the same brand, right? So because we had this fantastic wave of consolidation over 50 years, I mean keep in mind the only reason that companies merge is so they can raise prices later. So there is tremendous pricing power on the corporation side. At the same time, I believe we also have very strong labor because of the shortage that we're talking about, because of demographic trend and because of just generational preferences. Um, so I don't know how you solve this. I mean the the way, you solve it is is both both you know try to advantage each other. I mean, we raise we raise wages and then we raise prices and then we keep going uh, until someone wins. Well, when you look through, go ahead, Fernando.
3: You have some.
1: No, I was just gonna. Um, I was wondering about the study you did looking at. Uh, I bet that that even holds in the U.S. Like during the nineteen seventies, inflation <coughs> trended. So if you do some kind yes. of analysis, um, you'll you'll see that. But I, I wonder in how many cases where you know you get wage-price spirals, it's because of um, political or system like issues with the country itself. Like you know, the United States is a different kind of country than a lot of countries, right? So uh, if you have high higher prices here, uh, you can create businesses that will meet that demand, right? Um, in a lot of cases where you get the right tail of inflation you don't have that mechanism because there is a political reason why uh, the prices rose. You know, it's illegal to bring new supply online or the government wants it to be that way. Um, So it's just, you worry about uh, applying those kind of, um, treating every country equal in that way and doing a big data set like that across the world. It just feels like the United States has a lot more labor market flexibility, capital flexibility. Um, just It's a more dynamic environment that would allow... I mean, like you said, I, I totally agree. It's true. There is less competition today than, than ever. The S&P 500 is probably a bigger proportion of um, the total value of all companies than it ever has been. But that need not always be the case. And uh, I, I don't see any reason why if you know, car dealerships decided that they wanted to collude to keep prices high or whatever, there wouldn't be some kind of startup that comes along that tries to upend that or some kind of peer-to-peer exchange or some, you know, miracle. I don't want to be Pollyanna, but some kind of miracle of the capitalistic system that would come in to address that, uh, at least in the United States, Uh, whereas the places where you get those spirals out of control, um, less so just wanted to I love that, that you're
3: mostly. being pollyanna i think you, that's the role you <laughs> usually play. Well, well i
1: just want to counterbalance you know american exceptionalism uh, and i think people, it's great and i agree with most this whole most. thing of like what's happening now is the way it will, it will continue to happen and it's the whole malthusian thing of you know oh we have a, a billion people and next year there'll be three billion and we'll all starve it's like no people will go like Crazy, trying to figure out how to make the land more productive that's what will happen when food prices
2: no rise. and and by the way i i agree on on that I amount mean, of my my view is not some sort of pathetic scenario where you know end up riding right. riding motorcycles in desert but my view is we're going to get a decade of high inflation uh maybe seven percent you know on average and and that okay. is a good thing yeah. by the end of that would, decade. <laughs> that I was going to say
1: we could get on board with you because I think earlier you said four percent, but that was probably core. So seven yeah, percent headline. Because yeah. I was going to say, that. you know, three, four percent, we could probably agree that that's a reasonable estimate, but seven seems very high. Uh, <laughs> Do you know then, what the CPI
3: a... was between 2010 and 2020? The average CPI reading, Vincent, is was one7
1: 1.
3: percent. Okay, 1. <laughs> yeah. So you think when we go back between. 2020 call 2022 we already got a good head start at seven and a half percent to 2032 we're gonna average
2: out at seven percent let's say between five and ten and and i do think that would be a good outcome i think by the end of this decade uh it will be wonderful your student loan that crisis will be solved uh whoever still worries about public debt you know, I there are still some people who, you know, oh the debt clock, you know, well, that will be gone. Uh what happened to,
1: rate? happen to rates over that period? Well,
2: I, I'm glad that because I think this is the the next stage of the conversation. Um, I, I think initially they will have to be suppressed, and if you talk about this more what we expect the Fed to do, I think it's yeah. gonna be very hard to have like you know, very you know, positive. I mean, my view is you know, financial repression, you need a decade of GP negative real rates to solve a lot of the issues that we have. So Um, I mean, rates will start to increase until it breaks pain. The question is, you know, how fast that happens. We can talk about this later. Uh, But then eventually, yes, um, I mean, but you need a tremendous amount of pain for for the population to accept the medicine of higher rates. I mean, going back to the 70s, I mean, the Fed was behind the board, not as much as today, but behind the board for more than a decade. It only took Volcker in 1978 to come into you know, that really tough medicine, and you know these were really brutal years. I mean, you had you know you know twenty percent at contrary, you know close to twenty percent. You have ten percent unemployment rate. I mean, the last year the Carter administration was just horrible. But then, of course, after that, you get the Reagan boom, uh, and then you get like forty years of you know innovation, prosperity, uh, and because the U.S. effectively did average. I mean, by the end of the seventies, you know your debt to GDP ratio was probably around thirty percent. Um, So I think you know your scenario is going to play out. I, I do have a share your faith in in in, in mankind and in human intelligence and, and innovation and 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 you know your people's ability to associate freely to make the world a better place. I, I just think that takes you know ten years to get there.
3: Yeah, that's that would, I'm just already it's like the thing I'm thinking. If, if we had, if we have. Um, five to 10% CPI, and let's say that the Fed, just to keep rates negative, but the Fed still moves, like, I don't know, let's say the 10-year average is 5%. I don't know, does that seem reasonable in that scenario? Something like that? And yeah, like yeah. one of the, the studies that we have, like our one of our main valuation models is like, just take the CAPE ratio for the market and adjust it for interest rates. And I can only imagine how far we would have to move down uh, if we put in, if we plugged into our, our model uses out market tenure rate. So, you know, 2%. So if we move it, if we plug into that model, we're already well overvalued on the market, something like 30% given 2% rates, even adjusting for these crazy low rates, if we move it to 5%, what does it do? So it may mean, not be, a, I think a pretty painful decade for risk assets for sure. Um, so yeah, I don't have like a whole more, much more to say about that, except that it that would be, that's a bearish outlook, right? I mean, that's not, that's not an equity positive. So what do you, so I guess I think the, the utility wise, like we can sit here and talk about the WTO and China and all these different theories. Like, what do you do with your money in this environment? What do you suggest like, you know, over the next 12 months, over the next 12 years, what's the, what, what is the practical steps to
2: investing and
3: what's going to work?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think you guys are doing the right thing with 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 your uh, read asset allocation model and and the various models you have, where effectively you're trying to solve uh, for for that decade and the breakdown of correlation between treasuries return and stocks return. Um, I mean, there will be um, there will be a scramble for uh, a diversifying asset. I think that's the story of the past few years. I mean, we tried Bitcoin, we tried Ethereum. I mean, the past three days have made me very happy. My large gold position. Um, yeah, so I've been um, recommending this year. Um, I mean, gold has always been um, a big position for, for me. I've been recommending the Swiss franc uh, as a risk off asset. Maybe the Japanese yen could play some middle role, although I'm less familiar with the Japanese economy. Um, but yeah, in general, I agree. It's a pretty bearish outlook. I think we're we are, we, are, we are in agreement here. I mean, we know for 2022.
3: Uh, I you like Japanese is. stocks? Do you like you like Japan?
2: Uh yeah, I mean I, I would prefer to focus just, just based on what I know. I like Switzerland better. Uh I think the Swiss economy is stronger. I think the, the, the Swiss central bank is less married uh to financial repression and to negative rates. I think you know, now that Lagarde gave the, the green light for positive rates in Europe, the S and p will follow gladly. And and then for Switzerland, what I like is that they do their uh you know, when we do QE here, we, we buy liability ourselves, right? We issue, we, we buy debt that, that we issue. It doesn't, we really do anything, neither do good nor bad. But in Switzerland, when we do QE, they buy shares of Apple. <laughs> um, I mean, every Swiss person has like $1,000 in Apple, 1000 in Google, 1000 in Microsoft. If you add all the currency reserve that the SMB has, you have about 100,000 euro per capita in currency reserve in Switzerland. And they've done that because they're constantly trying to suppress the currency, right? I mean, they have the exact opposite problem of most emerging economies where like, they need to constantly intervene to prevent the franc from rising. So my my expectation is that they'll have to stop at some point, and at some point it might be 2022. But even if they don't, I mean, by buying the Swiss franc, you have an option, eventually on them on them owning the world. And, and you have, you know, a, a, you know, to participate in an economy that's extremely robust, extremely resilient, GDP growth of four percent. The budget is going to be in surplus. They got is going to have a budget surplus, You investors think develop that. Um, and then you have very nice risk-off characteristics. You have a very defensive index, uh, mostly healthcare, consumer staples, quality, dividend-paying stocks. I mean, not the most exciting in any way. But I mean, if I look at the, the equity space in the U.S., it's hard for me to get excited about anything. Hmm. Fernando, you have anything? I
3: was before I go on, and I wanted to. Just kind of set the table with our view for what we see the Fed doing this year, and then you can kind of tell us if you think you're we're right or wrong, or where you agree or disagree. Um, yeah. No, I'm curious
1: thoughts. on the on this on the like if you look at this the valuations of uh, Swiss companies, do they fall into that <laughs> deep value, or have people realized that this is a good place to be? Uh, now, It's
2: involved. more kind of a defensive quality too. So I mean, obviously the U.S. stock market is probably the most overpriced in the world. So uh, as soon as you move out of the U.S., you, you start to breathe again. Switzerland is not cheap uh, by any means uh, because it has this kind of garb tilt to it, right? I mean, it's you know quality balance sheets, dividend payers that have raised over time, defensive sector. So it's it's not it's not very very cheap. But again, you also have to. Um, You know, um, I like the defensive nature of of the the orientation. of
3: the And so I guess the implied, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, because I really don't know exactly where you stand on it. I think I do, but I don't know exactly. It's like you think the Fed is is obviously behind the curve and they need to raise rates this year. And I think we were talking about doing this podcast or whatever this is, taped conversation, we call it a podcast. Um, and we said, like, okay, where? What are our main different points that we have, right? And it was basically the economy's ability to handle higher interest rates, right? And then the durability of inflation, which I think we kind of talked about the durability of inflation a little bit. But the main thing that we see is the economy is is uh, we are we are very skeptical the economy can handle. The, the hawkish forecast for the Fed, that's kind of consensus at this point. I mean, seven hikes has really quickly become uh, kind of baked in, you know, five hikes is maybe the median at this point, I don't know, but, you know, 50 basis points at March, I think we've started to cool on that. But all those predictions in our view, are the, the economy can't handle it right now. That's our, our base case, at the very least. I mean, 41%, of household net worth is locked up in public equities at this point in time. If you look at the way that we've had the consumption boom, no doubt we've had a consumption boom over the last 18, 24 months, it's really been fueled and both of us have looked at charts like this, where we look at household net worth and then go forward two quarters to how much consumption you get this wealth effect that then affects um, household consumption. Our sense is that cycles are compressing and that these, This phenomenon is exaggerated even from where it has been, given the fact that equity ownership as a percentage of household net worth is at an all time high. The fact that consumption as a percentage of GDP, which is being fed by this asset growth, is at an all time high. The economy, higher asset prices and loose monetary policy, this is what we've said, is that it's been built into the scaffolding of this economy. That there's this is. You know, if if the Fed moves like they are planning on moving, it's going to be a tough, tough situation for the markets. And we're already seeing that. So, you know, we had all those stats that we laid out about how rare it was to see a Fed hike when the market's in a 10 percent drawdown or greater. It's like 71 percent of all Fed hikes come at 6 percent or greater or 6 percent or less drawdowns. Ninety three percent of all Fed hikes come with credit spreads, high yield credit spreads. Uh, below 400 basis points, yield curve, you know, usually you're at 105 basis points when a a hike cycle starts, we're at 46 right now. Um, All of these things point towards like that cycle has compressed just by jawboning and talking and moving um, the conversation to a hawkish place. We've already seen risk assets respond. And so the feedback loop is tightening. And I wonder, my base case is that we're not, it's hard for me to envision the credit spread staying above below 400 basis points if the market's in 20% or greater correction, you know, and that's the relationship we've seen. So, uh, you know, basically if we get to 4,000, 3,800 on the S&P 500, credit spreads will be wide. The Fed's gonna be forced to pause in our view. Well. Let
2: let, let me um, answer maybe first with the part that I agree with, um, which is the uh, uh, very aggressive schedule that the market is as for the Fed. And I mean, even I who generally I'm in the, you know, hotter, stronger, higher camp, I'm like, I'm looking at a calendar. (laughs) Okay, how do you fit all of that, you know, even even in Europe, it's kind of like, um, kind of difficult. So yeah, I I I I would say I'm I'm fine with consensus uh on 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 the path. I think it's it's already quite aggressive. I, I kind of agree with you uh what we're what priced in But my concern is more about after 2023. So if you look at the, the Euro dollar curve, you'll see that you have these very aggressive highs, which by the way is the worst for the market, right? We've also seen this study about the slow hiking cycle, the slow of the reason why we both have their issues is the equity is because it's like fast cycle coming. And then, so you get a euro like, first so it falls off, and then there's this bump uh, in 2023, late 2021, the, the view that the Fed is gonna, is gonna overdo it, and then they're gonna have to walk back on these hikes, and then it's, it's gonna kind of stabilize around 2.5%, 2.2%, which is what the Fed's terminal rate is. Um, that's that part of the curve that I'm concerned uh, the, the view that you know the Fed is going to walk back on it, that the Fed food is going to kick, and then we can have this very low uh, uh, terminal rates for forever. I'm not. I, I agree with you on this content. Um, one uh, one idea I wanted to push back I would have on 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 your, on on credit spreads. Yes, I agree. Credit spreads are the. You know, when we say the Fed is going to hike until you break things, I think the first thing to break and the most important thing to break. Watch. Now I, I'm not sure I agree with the level. I mean you point foreign basis point I heard a lot of smart people say that uh on, on the high yield bond index. Um well if we had foreign basis on a high yield bond index that would still mean that junk bond yield would be 1.5% less than inflation. So you are a junk issuer and you get to pay on your liability less, you know, you have nominal GDP growth of 10% of this point. Okay, yes, you're paying six instead of four now, <laughs> but you are still getting, you know, I mean, I can't say that financial conditions are tight when you have negative real jump bond yield, which never happened before. You still get the same incentive to level up and entity part Well, I mean,
3: I I don't know. I want to give Fernando a chance to respond if he had anything, but otherwise I'll keep
1: going. No, I just uh, want to note that we're back to what's going to happen with inflation. And exactly.
3: Which that goes back to if if, if you're 400, if your junk bonds real yield is truly negative, then that means you're believing the seven and a half percent CPI print. And I don't think we do. I don't believe I don't believe that's going to it's a flash in the pan. When you break down, like we looked at it. So again, we go back to the use and new car prices. And to the extent that CPI is above the Fed's 2% target, we're seeing, just as my recollection, we just ran these numbers and we're working through them. It's like 40% of that is attributable to use in new car prices. 20% of it is attributable to shelter. Um,
1: That's not going to go right.
3: No, that's structural. I would agree with you. There's some structural components and that housing is the structural problem for the markets and for the economy. Use the new car prices, I think, is a supply chain. That's how I would categorize that. Then we have um, transportation X used in new car prices, which is, when you look at it, is really correlated with oil. And that is, what was that percentage, Fernando? Was that 12 or 16% of the excess? Um,
1: Uh, I'd have to go back, look at the numbers. Let me get my number. I got
3: the numbers right here. It is another 20%. That's another 20% in the excess above CPIs, uh, the Fed's target on CPI. Um, And then you have food, which is 12%. And you have everything else, which is basically 8%. And that's how you get to the amount of CPI that's above the 2% target. So you take 40% away from. To use in our new car prices. I think you have to ignore that as supply chain. Energy is so volatile. I mean, you've seen that X car transportation component flip negative many times. So we're at 90 bucks on Brent. We're there about $91 on Brent today. You know, to get to, to, to keep that being a tailwind means we have to advance from here. So it's possible. I mean, I, I can go through my thoughts on oil, and I'm not exactly a bear, but I'm also... I think to assume just a steady glide path higher in the face of raising rates, we could get a surprise move lower, especially during this period where OPEC's adding supply and Iran could come back onto the market. So that's a volatile component of, of the of the mix. And, you know, I, I think when you look at housing, that's, that's definitely a problem, but-
1: just t- I just want to interrupt for a second. There's a component of energy in housing as well. For, for heating and fueling, uh, heating, cooling homes. Uh, it's a small uh, component, but a little bit of that housing is gonna be affected by any kind of weakness in oil as well. We'll get some relief there on the housing component. But the vast majority is, of course, rent and uh, shelter. Yeah, but when you pull that out,
3: I kind of look at it as what the cpi normalized or level cpi is going to be uh and i agree and housing works the lag or housing inflation and oer works about an 18 month lag so that we've already baked in inflation out for another year at the very least on the housing side so that's why i say it's structural and we i agree with you i think the housing market's underbuilt by about six million units in the united states right now so we're in a real tough spot there but when I start looking at the numbers at 7.5%, that's not the number to come to a real junk bond yield in my view. And if oil was to swing lower at any point, all of a sudden you could end up with the CPI at 3%, maybe even a little below it, depending on what
2: the other stuff does. Uh, but I mean, um, let, let me just, and I don't want, to have only the conversation and I, I don't want that to, to spend yeah, yeah, yeah. Much time on this. Um, one thing I'll point, on the real jump bond the argument, yes, okay, ma'am. I assume inflation will at seven point five is probably going to stay with you. Um, the problem is that we have so much to go. Like uh when when the Fed so let, let's look at prior pauses in, in Fed cycle. So the um when it paused in 2018, you know, when when Powell did break things, uh your real junk bond yield was five point four percent. Uh when the Fed paused in two thousand six, you know, after this very uh, very long cycle of for every meeting the real jump bond yield was 4.5 um so yes i understand we get some relief from the we'll get some stress blowout, but like right now we're at minus 15 percent on real jump bond yield and uh so we can have a lot of that questioning until until we get done and to me that is the key indicator no the, the, i don't think the s&p 500 really matters all that much and how overvalued it is i don't think to me this is this is the one um but more broadly one, one idea i'd like to throw is we seem to spend a lot of time talking about the Fed put, uh, you know, wh- what might trigger it, where is it, um, when would happen? I-, I think what we should think of is, I uh, call the Fed short call. Uh, so we've been used for four years of having, you know, the Fed as a put under the market. I would argue that right now, the Fed has sold a, a call against future market gains. Like, let me flip the argument on its head and say, what do you think the Fed will do with the S&P 500 makes a new high in 2022? I mean, this will be the green light for them to hike. And to me, that is that is, if you think in terms of risk reward, uh I kind of agree with you that there is a FED put. I just don't know where it's at. I think it's lower than what you think it is. Uh and it will be very data dependent based on what inflation does yada yada. So it's a soft put. But to me, the call is very strong. So to me that that argues for like, you know, um uh, more downside and upside
3: for
1: this point point two.
3: I agree with that. I think that's actually um how I pictured this year. So like when, when we came into the year, it was like we had to do our outlook and the outlook was we saw a big correction, but ultimately earnings grow at 8%, which, you know, okay, that's reasonable. Uh, multiples contracts reasonably, you know, you end up with low single digit total return coming out of the end of the year. So nothing, there's not Armageddon here. And the reason I think we're going to have a pullback and then the Fed put does kick in and that's a buying opportunity. Now, if we don't get that weakness, I don't have any reason to buy this market. If we were to stay at 47, 4800 overvalued levels on the market, like I did. I agree with you. There's not a whole lot compelling about just being outright long at that level. I think that, um, you know, but we're already down to 43, 55 right now. And, you know, and if you look at the way going back to the credit spreads and just our basic thesis is that this stuff's going to happen much faster than people expect the cycle compression thing. So you go back to our credit spread argument and you see that kind of uh, parabolic shift higher in spreads with as equity sell-offs move from like 10 percent to 20 percent. That's a key place. So we're at what, 355, 360. I haven't even checked. what
2: What is the mechanism? Is it a liquidity event? Like, a, or is it because you, you seem to indicate that you think earnings are going to grow at 8%, 10%, which I kind of agree with that. So, I mean, are you worried about corporation not being able to service the debt? Uh, I mean, you know, you have a duration of like five, seven years on on, on most
3: terms. Well, I, think, I it's think it's a it's risk a, premium. I think it's a valuation. It's a risk premium. and It's a, a, a valuation. No, it's, it's,
2: a, it's a market-driven thing, not a cash flow driven yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And
3: I do, and, you know... I don't think that I think earnings are going up, and I think multiples compress. When multiples compressed aggressively last year, we went through. Whenever rates rise, you see multiple compression. It's just like a pretty standard process. Mm. So I would expect to see multiples compressed this year. Uh, I would, ex- and if there's turbulence in the equity market, it almost it it almost always flows into mm. the high yield market. I mean, it's just I, I would say I don't show me a case where we had a bear market in the equity, in equities and it didn't affect high yield. So, you know, I think we're a lot closer. compete. could be, if we got the downside volatility in the equity market, I think we could be at that 475 credit spread, high yield credit spread level that we saw in 2018 when the Fed reversed course. So yeah, and that was the last time they hiked rates with a plus 400 spread was, last hike in 2018. I think Powell will remember that as a
2: mistake. Yeah, one, um, again, I, we had a conversation. Inflation was much lower. It was 1.5% right. in 2018. Yeah. So, okay, we don't want to get there again. But let okay, say we're right. in
3: summer 2022 and CPI I, is now at 4%. You
2: know, right, right. I think 4% is
3: probably, I would agree with that. Uh, right, that that's probably, by summer. So let's say the Fed hikes to three times or something, does mm. one and then 50. We're in the summer. The equity market's down 20%. Credit spreads, high yield credit spreads are at 450 basis points. All of a sudden, this picture that we're laying out is much different. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. If things are the way you describe, I, I would agree that the Fed could get you uh, um One element that I think. I would like to add to your analysis, which I think matters quite a bit, Uh, one of the historical comparisons between 2018 is that it's a global tightening cycle. Um, Mm -hmm. And one thing that helped the Fed in 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 2017 2018 was the fact that the BOJ and the ECB were were super easy; did not move rates; they kept QE going. So what this did is, as the Fed hiked rate, it sucked in capital. Uh, from Europe and Japan, you know, the basic this massive aging population, with massive surpluses, like right, close to a trillion dollar surplus between Europe and Japan. And that was just being sucked in, into the U S treasury market, into U S assets. So that really captured on the impact of rate hikes on, uh, on the economy, because you're, you, you, you flattened because you know, you, people could buy long-term treasuries. Another thing that was happening in 2008, uh, which, 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 is, which is important is that you could earn an arbitrage profit by buying US treasuries and sending euro forward one year or yen one year. And this is what the regulator requires of insurance and banks in Europe. If you want to take a position in treasuries and you have to kind of risk-free, um, you have to hedge your currency, but you don't have to match the maturities. So they would match a 10-year bond uh, with a one-year forward for contract sale short, and they would earn about 150 days return that way. That arbitrage opportunity is gone today. Uh, it's actually cheaper now. To, um, the, the yield on a German ten-year bond is higher than the yield on a currency hedged uh, U.S. Treasury. I think that matters enormously because that means that maybe as the Fed hikes, you are not going to see a stronger dollar, and the stronger dollar helps inflation. Right? That was one of the reasons why inflation slowed is because the dollar rally. Well, if that's not happening, if you are not able to suck in capital. To me, it seems actually the the opposite might happen. It's a reversal of you know all these, the U.S. has been the destination for global savings for the past five years. You know everybody wants to own the fang and, and believes in tesla and yada yada and you had higher rates on everybody if in a risk-off move you see this money money come out it's kind of like the 70s then you have the fed that starts in the pike, and then the dollar goes down and then that makes the, the whole situation more complicated. so i wanted to hear you yeah. on that scenario that's a good thought i mean it's good it's interesting i
3: mean what do you if that means weaker dollar coming in, uh, into this cycle? Uh, it does change the playbook a bit. And it's funny because like when we look at our real asset allocation model, it's got a weak dollar positioning. Our, we have a dollar model, which is basically all technicals and trends, and that's still long for now. But we're, we're positioned for, what I'd say, a, a weak dollar playbook. We have well, emerging markets are one of our larger equity positions. Value stocks is a, a big position. Commodities are a big, big position. And gold is the largest position in the model so you know this is like uh this is kind of a vincent week dollar vincent uh allocation and so i mean and i eat my own cooking so my money's invested alongside that model so I mean I, I see it that way the way i'm thinking this cycle is the uh, way it's we're going to write about this probably next week and fernando might have more to add on this with breaking down the cpi but I think that energy in oil is really going to be the, you know, is either going to be the thing that saves the Fed or is the wrecking ball. And eventually it will be the wrecking ball. That's our view is that it might be 2023, but it will be a wrecking ball at some point for all this stuff. Because when you break down what's driving CPI, like we said, I think that there's a chance that if we get weakness in oil, that you get actually a negative drag, something that was a huge positive becomes a huge negative on this headline CPI. And that would be have a massive implication for where it goes. So we could be under those the right scenarios at four or so percent by middle of the year, which would give the Fed all kinds of breathing room in, in the ability to kind of regain control of the narrative. The way I think that this expresses itself you need to have energy in your portfolio mix. So if you if you get the opportunity that we've been saying to buy high quality stocks, that's been our, our base case, you need to also add energy, which will never make it into any high quality factor portfolio, because energy is gonna be it more of a diversifying asset than maybe anything else on the menu this year, in our opinion. You know, It's like, if you see treasury selling off with stocks at this point, if you see, you know, certain correlations changing. I think that energy, energy stocks, oil exposure—if you can get direct exposure—that's going to be the best diversifying asset going through the year and in, in a hedge, somewhat, to if things
2: go wrong. Yeah, um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we are. I mean, our outlooks are actually quite close. I mean, especially when it comes to positioning. Um, I, I I would broaden that to to real assets in general. I mean, if we do get this, this dovish people, I mean, imagine, imagine, you know, the, uh, the Fed does ease like the, the rally in gold, metal, energy and commodities. Uh, I mean, if you, you get, you know, you a pretty strong economy, 4% inflation and the Fed is easing. <laughs> uh, I mean, this could be the, the perfect scenario. And that, that kind of uh, brings back a, a thought I had. Uh, as you know, I, I've owned gold for a long time, and you know I've made money. But you know most gold people are a little disappointed with, with the way it trades. But I, I started to be sympathetic to the idea that gold is kind of the ultimate leading indicator of, of what things does. And you look at how a trading started. The big rally started in in 2018, you know, and and what did gold see then? I think what gold saw, saw was that the Fed would, would over tighten and then would have to reverse back, and it saw that with a you know six months. Um, uh, notice, right? Eventually, in the winter of 2018, Powell realized what he was doing, and, and you know, and so we had this, you know, forty forty percent plus rally of gold. Then gold probably saw through the whole COVID inflation, you know, and had this big move to 2000. And then for a year, like you know, a year and a half, now there is just from the trading range, you know, 1700 to 1900, no trend. Man, I you know, I saw inflation seven percent. Why is gold do, not doing anything? Uh, I think what gold was telling us, it was first digesting the gains from before, but it was also seeing uh, the upcoming hike from the Fed. And, and that's why gold was, and it was not right now. I'm very encouraged to see this move you know, to 1,900. And, and the question that I have is, what do you think gold is seeing right now? Why is gold rallying you know, shot up in the past two weeks? Is it that coming Fed people to dovish? Or is it more my scenario of a weak dollar and then presentation? patient? of course both of them would be compatible
3: with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean that's what we were writing it last in January was like actually we wrote it last year, it was like we think if you we think 2022 is an analog for 2018, or maybe 2018 is an analog for twenty-two. So nothing really if you look at the asset menu for 2018, nothing really did well enough everything was in the red including gold but if you kind of zoom in gold bottomed earlier than everything else in yeah, July I think uh, yeah had yeah. a great rally and I do think it was looking through and seeing the Fed was going to make a mistake it's looking through the tightening into the eventual um, weakening and I think we're getting uh, I, or loosening I think we're getting the same exact signal now and it does kind of reassure us like these are compressing cycles like gold is Everything's happening so fast. We haven't even hiked an interest rate. We're still doing QE. And here we are. We are down what is it? 11, 12 percent now on the s p 500 at close today, heading into the long weekend. I would imagine credit spreads just are 375 or so high yield spreads. We pull up on the Bloomberg. and you know the yield curves at 46 basis points and gold is rallying. Like these things all tell me that this is going to be a shorter hike cycle. In a more violent set of circumstances coming together than uh, the consensus beliefs. I think that's where we're out of consensus ultimately. And our gold model went bullish uh, in January. So that's like, uh, that's going with us. But we're waiting to get officially bullish on gold. Want, I think you do want to see a break out of that. It's been 1950, 1680 for over 15 months. And so if we get out of that range, that's a pretty
2: bullish move in my view. Yeah, to me, the most bullish thing about gold is is the fact that it rallies when all of your other risk up assets are failing, right? I mean, you see treasuries that or down, big sell-offs, you see Bitcoin creating, um, and, and I think just that demand of what, you know, really what you founded before you found the notion that people will have to reinvent, reinvent their portfolio and that iterative process of looking for an asset with negative correlation attributes, I think gold is, is, is winning that race, and that's you know Bitcoin won that race for four years uh mm-hmm. and and see what it is in the price,
3: yeah, yeah, well, um do you have any el- anything else, Fernando is this I think this feels like we got a pretty good uh I don't want to go over an hour and a half here uh, you think we covered everything any other questions outstanding before we wrap it up?
1: I think it was a pretty good conversation, I think we covered a lot, yeah um i think
3: that we did i think that you know by the end of the conversation what i heard was vincent basically you know came around and saw the world mid our way
2: (laughs) now the other thing i kind of wanted to throw something nice at at you at the beginning uh but like i didn't have a chance because of the way you did the intro i wanted to like you know like We're
3: still working on all that stuff. We don't have <laughs> it down yet.
2: We don't know how I mean, to do intros or any that stuff.
3: It's going to be. Super- if you
2: want, I can throw. I, I just want to throw some love. We'll here, probably like
3: tape something different, but it was endearing. Fernando's the intro was endearing. I liked it. I
2: know, I know, I, I know, but I, yeah, so basically, I don't know. what, 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 what Do you want me to just throw like a, a couple
1: nice things so that you can have Of them? course.
3: Well, anything nice, yeah, I I <laughs>
1: The, uh, please, the review trailer for this podcast. Yeah, then, yeah, just uh, <laughs> make a clip show
3: of just all the compliments and then I'll play that whenever or one of our calls are bad,
2: you know. It'll help all right, us. so let, let me go for it. Um, I mean, I, I really wanted to, to, to thank you, uh, you know, for, for being the friends you have been and, and really two things, in special, especially one Juan Fernando for, for teaching me how to code uh, I still remember when when I started Ned Davis research and you had this infinite patience and, and, and talent at explaining things with patients. And I, I really think it makes a difference for, for research these days. You have the other people who can code and the people who cannot code. Uh and you know, if there are any young young people who listen, yes, get your CFA, get your MBA, but get a book, Python, R, whatever it is, but learn to code. I mean this is this is the world we live in and, and, and I think the it translates into the research that you do, like the the quality and the depth of the research you can do comes from, uh, from your ability to uh, explore very large data sets for you. uh And then the, the other nice thing that I I wanted to say to, to Warren is I you know I, I still remember back in the days when uh, you know we're, we're in the Davis research. I think both of us were very passionate about market and, and still are. Uh, and and because we're so passionate about markets, we we often ruffle feathers. Uh, and and I remember that we used to, to support one another. And now I look back at these fights, and they seem petty and, and silly. And but um, I think it's that desire that that ultimately stems from from a passion about what you do. Uh, that that helped us produce this research. And I'm glad that we we wanted to do good research, and this has been always uh, our our driving force. And I think this is what has led us to where we are today. Me with this, you know, very successful product, Stonex, and you with this pretty really fantastic product we launched at, at three fourteen, and um, I think you know, passion, attachment to the truth, and and persistency in what you do uh, is what what explains the success today. Well, I appreciate well, that.
1: that. Yeah, I appreciate that as well. After that incredibly nice comment, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me do one. Uh, I just wanted to say that I look back at the time when all three of us were working together <laughs> as the greatest years of my career being able to have these conversations every day in the office wonderful this is going to be great yeah Yeah, yeah. vincent this is going to be your profile picture (laughs) you
3: are screen grabbing that but yeah i do appreciate that i do I, i i remember the one thing i would say vincent uh is uh when we got to ndr we both were uh buying tbt which is a short bond etf and i hope that we've learned something since then well i,
2: I thought so I, I thought i had two nice things i wanted to say about. It. one was that and i thought i was the better one the other one was giving me understanding modern money by uh, uh randall whatever and we have, we were on the mmt thing before it was cool for sure you um, were you I, I didn't know about it it was so clearly like that it's hard to read that understanding modern but I, I came back to it over the years like i probably read really like times now um and it it was um yeah and it was like 2012 too
3: you know it's a it's a long time ago yeah no i mean honestly it was come it came from a place of like i lost money trying to short bonds and i was like why is my mental model of the economy in the bond market not working and that's where i found uh mmt i don't think everything about it is right but i think You need to understand it like that was a huge help for the next 10 years now the whole world's thinking about it it's like we have an advantage on the whole world because we've already been thinking about this for 10 years so yeah it was um but in, in any event i mean hopefully we can do a conversation like this more often and collaborate in other ways and maybe do some short ones just updates and uh as topics arise and like as these things happen and everyone the, the future evolves and is different than we all expect anyways. But um, truly, though, appreciate the kind words. And I, and, uh, it is special to get to work with your friends. That's why I love working with Fernando. And I love that, you know, you and I have stayed in touch and are still doing this and basically bring bringing our careers together. So honestly, two of the smartest people, definitely smarter than me. And I'm not just saying that two of the smartest people I've ever met and i'm really happy that i get to just trade ideas with both of you i mean i was i wasn't supposed to be able to do this stuff so i appreciate it and i'm glad you came and and uh took a little bit of heat from us vincent and like i said hopefully you to do
2: it again yes i will all right guys now i gotta okay. do real work right, okay thank you everyone this is fun do it again bye bye thank you bye